This podcast, this podcast is brought to you by the Vitz School of Governance. For more information, visit visit their website on www.vitz.ac.za/wsg. We could also think about healthcare and social security. The government may have committed to providing free quality healthcare to all, but this commitment may not be realized as a result of various constraints. So regardless of what policy may be, the decisions in relation to them are characterized by constraints. These constraints can come in various forms and are usually characterized by the resources a country has access to, such as natural resources of the country, where the country is located, or the labor power within the country. These are all resources, and having access to resources gives you power. The amount of power you have will also determine to what extent you can implement policies successfully. But while the study of power belongs to the arena of the political and related social sciences, economics plays an important role in balancing that power, or not. So a simple definition of economics is that it is the study of how society uses its limited resources to satisfy unlimited wants and needs. Within that definition, there are three important terms. The first being limited resources, the second ones, and the third needs. Important to note, though, is that money is not necessarily considered a building block of an economy or a valuable resource. It is a medium of exchange. So it is simply a way for us to set relative prices or indicate the value of a resource within an economy. We can refer to it as a resource as far as it provides us with the ability to purchase other valuable resources, but it has no intrinsic value. So in other words, if it loses value, it just becomes a piece of paper. If you think about a different resource, like gold, for instance, you can use it as a medium of exchange. So in other words, you can swap it out for something else that you need. If you don't want to do that, you can alternatively wear it as a necklace or a ring. So it has intrinsic value. But back to the three important terms. I've already referred to some limited resources. The ones I have mentioned so far are natural resources, the location of a country, and the labor power within a country. Position of natural resources are what most industrial economies are built on today. And whether these resources are theirs or taken from other countries is a conversation for another day. A country's location could also be important. Some countries exploit their locations for economic benefit such as Singapore. Singapore has exploited their location and they are now one of the biggest trade hubs in Asia. Lastly, labor power is what some Asian countries have used to build their economies. We could think about China, for example, who have built their economy on labor. Wants and needs are exactly what they mean. If you think about your wants and needs, you may need food and water to survive, but perhaps you want to take away instead of the bread you have at home. To balance these wants and needs, we need to make choices. Because our resources are limited, we need to trade off these choices against one another and choose the one that will have the most optimal outcome. These sort of principles can be applied to various levels within a society, at the individual level, the household level, the country level, the regional level, or even the global level. So thinking about this at the household level, resource constraints can come in the form of money which comes into the household. And again, here, acquiring that money, a medium of exchange, could be based on your access to other valuable resources. So for most of us, that would be labor power. We use our labor power and we get remunerated with money, which we then use as a medium of exchange. 
for other valuable resources. So in a household, someone would need to decide how the money that comes into that household will be spent to satisfy as far as possible the wants and the needs of the various members within the household. So needs being things that we require to survive, food and water, and wants being things that household members desire. So entertainment could be thought of one, for example. Similarly, at the global level, resources are limited. There is a constant depletion in the resources which humanity needs to survive, and this needs to be balanced with the wants of humanity. This is especially true for non-renewable resources, and the climate crisis is an example of this. Here we need to decide as a collective how we want to change our behavior to sustain our resources for as long as possible, assuming we are interested in the survival of future generations. At the regional level, we may want to, for example, send the South African National Defence Force to Zimbabwe to assist in one way or another. This, again, would require resources. So we need to decide where we would take these resources from. Are we going to cut from health spending or education spending? We need to find money somewhere. At the country level, though, resource constraints are affected by all these other levels. So resource constraints at the household level affects resource constraints at the country level, and so does the global level. If an overwhelming proportion of households live in poverty, for instance, the government might take it upon itself to address the problem by adopting a policy to that effect. The social security policy is such an example, where government takes money from those who have, and they redistribute it to those who live in poor households. If the government ignores this problem, they risk being outvoted in the next election, specifically if the problem affects a large part of the population. At the global level, the climate crisis would also affect how government goes about using its resources. The renewable energy policy could be seen as such an example, as the depletion of resources globally would also have implications at the domestic level. The government thus has an incentive to work in tandem with other countries by aligning its government policy in the interest of addressing this global crisis. So further thinking about resource constraints at the country level, every policy stance which government takes has implications for its resources, whether it's deciding to expand the social grants program to supplement household income or to invest in further coal plants to ensure the country's energy security, even though this investment could be to the detriment of the environment. The social security policy will require that money is available to pay those who live in poor households, while the renewable energy policy will require that money be made available to invest in technologies required to realize the goals of that policy. Government thus has a budget constraint, and they need to trade off various policy decisions against one another. In other words, they will need to compromise to find a balance in their decision making. And like any budget, they need to decide how much they can spend based on how much they have collected. So in South Africa, the government collects the bulk of its money through taxes. There are a range of different taxes which government collects, and the most important in South Africa are personal income tax, the value-added tax, and company income tax. If too many people become unemployed, government will be unable to collect a sufficient amount in terms of income tax, and people will have less cash in hand. So that will also mean that they won't have as much money to spend on goods and services, and the government will thus collect less in value-added taxes. 
these constraints will also have an effect on government's labor market policy. So it might then be in the government's interest to invest in labor market policies that ensures that the employment rate is as high as possible so they can collect as much revenue as possible. Based on how much revenue they collect, they can decide on the spending priorities. But just like you and I, they need to make compromises between what they think is important at a particular time. So in a nutshell, they would need to borrow if they do not have enough revenue to cover all their expenses. So in a nutshell, you can think of government as a household and whoever is in charge of that household will have the most say over the distribution of the household's resources. But it is also in the interest of that decision maker to keep the peace within the household. So they would consider as far as possible what the wants and needs are of the members of the household, bearing in mind that they cannot satisfy everybody's needs and wants. So though economic factors are not the only consideration when making policy decisions, they play a big role in it. I will now hand over to Professor Pandi Pillay, who will challenge us to think differently about how this relationship between government policy and economics works. Okay, thank you very much, Odil. Let me start by thanking the audience for attending this webinar. Listening to one economist is bad enough. Uh, listening to two is extremely brave. My colleague Odile has articulated very clearly the links between economics and public policy. Using the conventional economics model as a starting point. I would like to take this discussion a stage further by questioning the current teaching of economics in universities, particularly the obsession with mathematics and modeling, as well as maintaining the myth that economics is, quote unquote, a natural science, in many ways like physics. I also argue here that economics teaching should take greater cognizance of the social sciences. And I also argue in this paper that economics teaching should take greater cognizance of the social sciences, particularly politics, sociology, history, and psychology. A study of politics, for example, would undoubtedly promote a better understanding of the power relationships that determine the nature of economic policy in a country. For example, understanding the influence of big business, multilateral institutions, and rating agencies can really help one understand better who really determines economic policy in South Africa. The so-called neoclassical model which dominates economics teaching across, literally across the world, it dominates not only economic teaching, but it dominates economics thinking. But it has no room in it, in this paradigm, for the analysis of political power. Given the neoclassical framework's obsession with the scarcity of resources, supply, demand, and prices, as Odile has so clearly explained to us earlier. 
The dominant trend that we find in economics, both in the teaching of economics at university and in the practice of economics, particularly in the private sector, is the assumption that the economy is comprised entirely of free markets and that the background that we work to is market-led globalization. And these are the trends that I want to question and suggest that we need to undertake a review and a rethink of the way in which we approach the teaching of economics. Now, in the history of economic thought, Karl Marx has demonstrated better than anyone else the importance of political power in the design and implementation of economic policy. However, the teaching of Marxian economics is at best confined to an optional course in the third year or in the honors program. In other words, Marx, the teaching of Marxian economics, as well as other broader schools of thought, is completely marginalized in most universities teaching of economics. Again, with respect to Marxian economics, going beyond what I just said in terms of its neglect in the economics, of the, in the teaching of economics, Marxist economics in the general mythology is also seen by those who subscribe to the dominant neoclassical free market paradigm to have been responsible for the failure of the totalitarian regimes of the former Soviet Union. I mean, there is a direct link made by neoclassical economists between Marxist economics and the failure of the Soviet Union. Now, those states were by no means Marxian states in the context of what Marx wrote and stated so clearly in his works. Maintaining such a myth is vital for, in my opinion, for the continued dominance of neoclassical economics in the context of both the teaching and practice of economics, both in the northern industrialized countries as well as in the developing world. Similarly, I think that the role of the state in the economy is demonized to a great extent by the neoclassical free market economists. Even though the history of economic development post-World War II shows quite unambiguously how states and markets have combined to transform societies from poverty and the devastation of World War II to becoming rich countries in a relatively short time. And yeah, I think of examples such as Japan, South Korea, Singapore, and more recently, China. This is not neoclassical economics. This development has not been an outcome of free market economics. In both Asia and Latin America, and increasingly in Africa, Countries that are growing and prospering are those that are effectively combining the respective roles of the state and the market. The free market is nowhere to be found except in the pages of economics textbooks and the minds of many economics teachers, unfortunately. However, 
in the classroom, neoclassical economics continues to dominate. Paul Samuelson's famous or infamous, depending on your view, textbook of the 1970s continues to dominate across the world in delivering the neoclassical paradigm as the dominant feature of world economies. In South Africa, there are variations of Samuelson, but the variation lies largely in changing the dollar to the rand. The message, however, across all our textbooks is essentially the same, and that is one of free markets, scarcity, and the efficiency of the private sector. At the same time as the neoclassical framework is being pushed down students' throats, powerful societal forces continue to press the case for the free market across the world. In the USA, for example, there are well-endowed right-wing think tanks, such as the Heritage Foundation. In South Africa, we have what is, in my view, the rather pathetic free market foundation. And more recently, the now inappropriately named South African Institute of Race Relations, who have abrogated to themselves the role of defending neoclassical economics and everything associated with it in South Africa, including an often passionate defense of the private business sector and its obscene concentration of wealth, all in the name of the free market. Now, neoclassical economics claims to be more like physics than any other social science, because it is able to make, quote unquote, hard predictions. The analytical tools available to economics and economists are indeed very impressive. Models, equations, regressions, and statistics. Indeed, not only are they very impressive, they are very intimidating to other practitioners of social sciences. And the absence of these quantitative tools in sociology, history, philosophy, and psychology, for example, condemns these disciplines in the view of the neoclassical economist to an inferior status to economics as perceived by the standard neoclassical economist. And I think in this context, an important question is the following. How has economics managed to create such a position of authority compared to other social disciplines? For one, it is without doubt the most influential of the social sciences, certainly in the view of the private business sector, but also increasingly with governments and bureaucracy in both the industrialized and developing world. And of course, South Africa, especially post-1994, is a classic disciple in government of the neoclassical economic framework. I think a major reason for the dominance of economics 
lies in its ability to attach numbers to mathematical symbols. It enables economists to make quantitative predictions. Of course, whether these predictions are correct or not uh, is never explained later. Of course, this is not true of all economists. When many eminent economists across the world have complained of the overuse of mathematics in economics. But a few of them have shown how this overuse has inhibited broader thinking about the economic development of nations. And it is these simplistic models of the neoclassical economists which often pass for gospel amongst financial journalists, business economists, lobbyists, and politicians, whom we unfortunately encounter in the media, on television, when we have a bad sense of timing and switch the TV on, and there somebody is rattling to you about how efficient the neoclassical model is working in South Africa. However, the, the outstanding feature of these models, as I said earlier, is that they are rather simplistic to the extent that they exclude the important influence of power and certainty in shaping economic outcomes. Now, I think internationally, the authority of orthodox economics derives from what many authors have described as its opacity of transparency. And therefore, there seems to me to be an urgent need for the core ideas in economics to be much more transparent and not be consumed by technical jargon. First, I think it's important, for instance, that people should understand what is being claimed about their own behavior. The language of the social sciences, be it economics, sociology, or politics, should always be open enough to make possible an argument between the observer and the observed. Secondly, I think that it's very important for the various disciplines to be able to talk to each other. All the great economists of the past that is, before the dominance of the neoclassical framework in the 1960s, 70s, and so on. All of these great economists of the past tried to communicate their insights in ordinary language. But the majority of today's economists normally talk mathematics to one another with little concern for a greater understanding, for example, of the relationship between economics and the broader political economy. The need for economists to think more creatively about e economics, I think, has become more increasingly apparent after the global financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. Very few economists predicted that crash. And students, economic students and observers of economics, have rightly asked 
What is the point of studying economics if it cannot tell you what is going on? Nor can it offer policies to prevent events like this happening. And I think we have to link this failure to understand such events to the dominant methodology prevailing in economics at this point in time. Neoclassical economics has developed a peculiar method for studying the economy, and the use of any other method is not regarded as quote-unquote economics. And the message from the neoclassical paradigm is not how to think, but what to think. And what to think is clearly contained in this dominant paradigm, the neoclassical framework, that unfortunately still dominates both the teaching and the practice of economics in our countries. In today's classroom, students are fed models. The better the university, the more the more well-endowed it is in terms of resources, the more sophisticated the modeling, and the more exclusive the group that participates in that modeling. This is not to underplay the importance of statistical and broader quantitative analysis in economics. Such statistical and quantitative analysis remains and must continue to remain an important dimension of the work that economists do. But it should not veer into an arena of trying to compete with the natural scientists. Because whatever economists say, economics cannot be physics. It is not a natural science. It is a social science. It is about the behavior of people. Oh, my sense is that economists and economics need to move with greater speed towards collaboration with disciplines such as psychology, sociology, philosophy, politics, and history. In the view of Robert Skidelsky, who is the famous biographer of the great British economist John Maynard Keynes, he has said that such cooperation will broaden economists' view of what is important and what is true about human life. Let me conclude by asking the question, well, what does all of this mean for the Wits School of Governance? As someone famous said, we should not leave economics to economists alone. This is not a burden that economists should be allowed to carry because they have shown a reluctance to move away from rigid economic frameworks. I think, again, the question, what does this mean for WSG? I think given our multidisciplinary nature, it seems that we are ideally placed to do at least two things. The first, I think, is that we can show some leadership, we as economists in the school, we can show a greater degree of innovation by involving more of our social science colleagues 
in our economics teaching and research. So even though we are a multidisciplinary school, we continue to operate within in silos within the school. This needs to change. And secondly and finally, I think we should, as a school, examine the feasibility of a research project for a new economics, building on the work that is already taking place in the North, including such sub-disciplines as heterodox economics, feminist economics, and the so-called new economic thinking. Thank you very much. That's where I shall stop. And I guess we're open for questions. Yes. Prof. Pandey, I'll read out one of the questions to you in the Q&A. And just also remind everyone else that you can post questions in the Q&A or in the chat. Um, so this person says, Professor Pillay, clearly you are against neoclassical economics. Fair enough. What isn't clear is what do you stand for or advocate? It seems like you are leaning towards Marxism or at minimum it's child socialism. I think that's a completely wrong interpretation of what I'm saying. What I am doing is undertaking a critique of the neoclassical framework. If I'm against the neoclassical framework, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm a Marxist or a socialist. Not that I reject those labels. I'm quite happy to be called a Marxist or a socialist. I don't consider it as an insult, which many neoclassical framework observers would say. But this is not about neoclassical economics or Marxism or socialism. It is about how you can teach students economics that goes beyond a very narrow framework that focuses on non-world-like situation. The free market doesn't exist anywhere. Even in the country in which these economics textbooks are derived from. So it's not a question of whether I am for or against socialism, Marxism. These are notions that are disappearing rapidly. What I am for is development. And I'm looking for the economics model that can develop, that can deliver more equitable patterns of development for the people of our country and for our continent. And it is quite clear that the neoclassical model, as it is practiced in South Africa, both in the private sector and the influence that it has on government policy, is not delivering development to our country and our continent. That is what I'm concerned with. I'm not concerned with being labeled as a Marxist or a socialist, although I consider that a compliment. That is the compliment you want to give me. Okay, thanks, Prof. Pandi. So there's another question here that I think I'll take a stab at. Would one be correct to say that every government is caught between the choice of whether to pursue an expansionary policy versus a contractionary fiscal policy or stance? So I think, like, from my perspective, the problem with our fiscal policy is the way it's designed. So it relies sort of heavily on the labor market. So we can see it in our revenue model and also in our social security model. Um, so in terms of our revenue model, our main income sources are personal income tax and value added tax. So you're relying on people to be in employment so you can collect that personal income tax. And then you're relying on people to have cash in hand so you can have that value added tax. 
And in our social security framework doesn't actually cover people who are in employment. So the assumption is that you need to work. And if you don't work, then, you know, you need to sort yourself out because our social security program only covers people who are really not able to work. So pensioners, children, and then people with disabilities who aren't able to work. And I think that's really the catch-22 for our government is the design of those two things because our labor market is not delivering what it should. Our unemployment rate is really high, so that means government is not collecting the revenues it should be collecting, and then it's not spending on the unemployed. So, yes, I think that you have to make a choice between those two, but for us, it's really... Like, do we have a choice? I mean, if they don't do the expansionary fiscal policy, for example, through EPWP, other sort of employment initiatives that government sponsors, then people are left unemployed. And then the social security policy also doesn't cover them. So, yes, I would say that they, um, they're caught between a rock and a hard place there. Fandi, I don't know if you want to add anything or if I should read out another question for you. I think you can move on. Yeah, thanks. Okay. So quantitative easing, what's your standpoint in the context of South Africa? Are you talking about uh, Dosto Ledwaba? Is that the same question? Because there's a question about the independence of the central bank. I was wondering if we can't uh, read those two. Maybe you can read out that one if you have it. What do you think about the independence of the central bank in the world and what impact does it have in new economics? Okay. So will you take those two? And yeah, sure. Well, let me say quickly, I'm not in favor of the independence of the central bank because I think it leads to a separation of fiscal and monetary policy. You need fiscal and monetary policy to work much more closely together. So I think that it links to the question about quantitative easing because the central bank is rejecting the notion of quantitative easing because it quite correctly claims that that's not its job. Its job is price stability. That it has to, its job is to ensure that inflation remains in the three to 6% and nothing else is, it, is of its concern, which in interpreting the constitution is absolutely correct. So for me, the problem is not with the central bank because central bankers do what central bankers do, and that is, they adopt, by and large, very conservative positions. The problem is the government, because the government makes monetary policy as it does fiscal policy. So the government has chosen as its monetary policy inflation targeting and has said to the Reserve Bank, we want inflation to remain in the range 3 to 6%, and your job is to ensure that it stays in that range. So I think much more important than the question of the independence of the central bank is the effectiveness of macroeconomic policy as designed by the government, specifically the national, the Ministry of Finance. And I think that's where it is lacking. If you broaden the mandate of the central bank, I mean, the mandate of the US central bank is much more liberal than ours, the developing country. If you broaden the mandate of the central bank to ensure that it takes account of employment, economic growth, poverty, inequality, etc., in its deliberations, 
then we would have a much more effective monetary policy. Right now, the central bank governor hides behind the mandate that the constitution gives him, which does not help us with issues like quantitative easing. There has never been a greater case for quantitative easing in this country than it is now. And there are several people have already written about how feasible this, and it is indeed feasible, this kind of strategy is possible in the, in the, in the current situation. But what do we do? We continue to talk about debt and GDP as if talking about it will make it disappear rather than saying, what can we do about it? And changing the interest rate as the Reserve Bank somewhat belatedly did you know, several months after the onset of the COVID pandemic changes nothing. Nothing has happened. Nothing will happen in terms of stimulating the levels of economic growth that we need in order to tackle poverty. Because changing the interest rate in and of itself is going to have very little impact on growth and development. Maybe I can add to that. I think Profundi and I always, we always joke about this independence question because I feel like I, I disagree with him a little bit on the independence. So I am of the view, and I know there are all these other social issues that need to be addressed and we need to have the convergence between monetary and fiscal policy, but we also don't want politics to get involved in the bank, right? So in debates about the sort of nationalizing the bank, whatever people have said, you know, it could sort of end up being like a piggy bank for the ruling party or the, the government, the government of the day. So for me, I don't know, like it's a difficult debate, you know, you sort of have to weigh those two up. And especially in, in a context of corruption where we are, who knows what'll happen if the bank broadens its mandate and loses its independence. Another question here is, does illegal migration, like what is happening in South Africa, affect government policy and service delivery negatively or positively? Profundi, do you want to take that one or should I go? Well, I will answer, I'll answer that question with a question. What has that got to do with what we are talking about? Not clear. Government policy. I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of our students. There are two things that strike me. And I don't want to generalize, but I would say that over the past decade of teaching civil servants, quite senior civil servants, it does strike me that there is a great similarity between the new elite in South Africa and the old elites in South Africa. And their prejudices are so much like the prejudices of the old elite. So you ask them, what are the problems in South Africa? Illegal migration is always at the top of the list. I was once told that there are 8 million Zimbabweans in South Africa. So I said, who's left there? <laughs> Only Robert, because Robert was still alive then, and maybe his wife. So I am not sympathetic to these arguments that migration is responsible for our problems. I think we should rather reflect on the role that these countries played in our liberation and see this as something, as a debt that we have to repay, both to the region and to the continent as a whole. Now, I don't know whether it's a satisfactory answer, but Kamantha didn't tell me I have to give satisfactory answers. (laughs) 
Odile, I just want to check, can you see Millie's questions right at the top? Millie Kraber, yes, I can. There's one for Profundi again, advocating for paradigm shifting the teaching of economics. If so, where should be the starting point and when and how soon should this begin? I just want to read another question that is related to that. It was briefly mentioned how there has been a shift in the Northern Hemisphere away from the neoclassical mantra of economics to more heterodox approaches. Prof. Pandey, can you offer insight into why the academic and administrative structures of the South African universities seem to be hesitant to make the shift? It has been said a lot of this has been driven by the private sector training traditional economists for employment. In what ways are our universities limited by the private sector? Yes, I'm certainly arguing for a, a change in the paradigm. The extent to which this is possible in the short term is quite debatable because it's quite easy to blame the private sector for a lot of things. I think they are culpable in determining the agenda, but they have willing participants in the universities. Too many of the teachers of economics are bound to the neoclassical paradigm. And the issues of heterodox economics, behavioral economics, Marxist economics are peripheral. This is a nice thing to do, but what we really want you to know is have a good understanding of neoclassical economics because that is what matters. And unless we are able to change this, and I think that we cannot look to the government in general, the Treasury in particular, and the Department of Higher Education to have any role in this, because all of them subscribe to the current neoclassical model. So we need to have more brainstorming, more innovative thinking, and more small-scale modeling, as in WSG, for example, of how this is possible. There are many economists, both eminent economists and non-entities like ourselves, who are thinking about these issues. We need to do much more about bringing together the thinking about this on the South African continent, uh, South Af in South Africa, and on the African continent. This is not an easy task. We're, we are tackling a, a phenomenon that has dominated the teaching of economics for the best part of half a century. And so unless we make a start on this, unless we collaborate with progressive thinking people across the country, across the region and across the world, we're not going to make any progress. So it will certainly not be achieved in my lifetime, but hopefully. Okay, um, there's another question here that I'll take. How do you classify monetary policy? Is it public policy? So yes, it is public policy. We didn't really define policy, economic policy, but you essentially have two groups. So it's monetary policy and fiscal policy. So monetary policy is that which is related to the financial economy. So financial markets and the main instrument that we use, that the Reserve Bank uses, because monetary policy is their mandate, is the interest rate. And then fiscal policy, we like to think of in terms of the real economy, so real goods and services, you know, so things moving on the ground versus like in an alternate universe in some financial hub somewhere. 
So that's just the difference between monetary and fiscal policy, but both of them are, are economic policies. It's essentially the two branches of economic policy. Profani, I don't know if you want to add to that, or should I read the next question? No, I'm fine. Please go ahead. Okay, why is it that economic policy making in South Africa is so contested? What do you suggest SA should do about making and implementing economic policies? Well, I don't know if it is contested. I think it should be contested for the simple reason that post-1994, it is quite clear that economic policy, whether it is macroeconomic policy, trade and development policy, transport policy, etc., uh, is not delivering on any of the indicators of growth, employment, poverty, inequality. It is clear that the government's economic policy has failed. The government adopts the policy that, well, of course, it's very convenient to blame all of this on Jacob Zuma. But even before that disastrous decade, what was economic policy delivering? Of course, we've had some years of positive economic growth, but the impact on unemployment, poverty, and inequality has been minimal. So it's quite clear that even though the government's policy, macroeconomic policy and other aspects of economic policy, has failed, of course, the private sector which is a dominant player in the formulation of South African economic policy, wants this to continue. Because as far as the public-private sector and the wealthy of the country are concerned, 2% economic growth is good. Because if I were Nicholas Oppenheimer or Patrice Motsepe, 2% growth is fine because I have so much money, increasing it by 2% is great. But 2% growth does not deliver jobs. It benefits those in the top 10% of the population, those of us who are insiders of the economy, those of us who are in the formal job sector. It doesn't benefit the outsiders, the poor, the unemployed, the destitute. So no one, no commentator is telling the government, your policies have failed. And I don't see anybody from the government here, so I hope somebody will transmit this message. For me, it is a clear failure because you have targeted the wrong indicators. You are relying on economic policy that is written in the business halls of Santon, New York, Washington, and not in Pretoria. Although we pretend that policy is made by government, it is not. It's made elsewhere. Okay. Um, there's another question here. Since our macroeconomic policies have not effectively dealt with poverty and inequality, what is your thinking on NHI as an example to universalize basic socioeconomic services and therefore deal with poverty and inequality? Profundi, you can also weigh in, but my thinking, NHI... Um, is that I don't always see the inability to deliver on these basic socioeconomic services as an economic problem necessarily, but rather one of service delivery. 
So how can we be more effective, you know, in terms of how we provide healthcare in the public sector? We've seen so many horror stories, you know, coming out of government hospitals, you know, where babies are going missing and, you know, old people are laying on the floor and, you know, in some instances, people are even dying. So I personally don't see how universalizing healthcare is going to help us fix that problem. And I think that is maybe also a root cause of why we are where we are in terms of the health sector. But I'm sure, um, you know, there are other aspects of the NHI that will be useful, particularly using money that's currently going into the private sector and, you know, sort of rerouting it to the public sector. But I think service delivery is maybe a bigger issue there. Prof. Mandy, I don't know if you want to add on or if you have uh, a different Yeah, view. I, want, I want to say something not directly linked to the NHI, but associated with it. Somebody quite senior in the National Treasury uh, told me this when he was quite unhappy about my criticism of of the Treasury's uh, macroeconomic policy. And he raised this issue of poor implementation and, of course, the issue of corruption and the wastage of resources. And I think a relevant point he, he raised with me is that why are we not achieving economic growth of relatively high magnitude when the expenditure of the government, for example, this year, before the supplementary budget, the government is planning to spend 1.7 trillion rand in the budget. Why is that kind of expenditure not translating into growth? And, and, the sh- and the short answer, in his view, which I think is not very far from the truth, is that the extent and the depth of looting across the public sector is such a great magnitude that those of us that listen to the TV and they tell us about corruption here, there, and everywhere, we don't have a sense of the extent and the depth of looting of public resources that has been going on for several years and is continuing to go. So even beyond the issue of whether the government should implement much more expansionary macroeconomic policies, is this question of what are you doing with the money you already have? And the answer to that question is unfortunately not very much. And I think the NHI and education and so on are example of those kinds of things. Absolutely. Another one, yeah, Prof. Pandi, completely agree with the narrow ways of how we measure growth. Unfortunately, we are underdogs within the global trade economy, very reliant, and to some extent controlled by non-African countries. Would it then still be worthwhile to seek alternative methods of measuring growth if we are also currently reliant on countries who measure growth within those narrow parameters? Is this for me? Yes, it's for you. (laughs) I think we mustn't be caught in this notion that because the world is a much more globalized place now than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago, that we are completely helpless. Many other small economies have grown, have developed over the last half a century in spite of these things. So, of course, you have to take into account that you're a global player, but there is much that you can do from within in terms of bottom-up development strategies, for example, in terms of using the resources given to municipalities 
in a much more efficient way that they can grow, that they can contribute to growth and development. So the private sector and international agencies play this globalization card too often to try to imbibe in us the notion that you are just one of many players. You have to do, you have to play according to the global rules. You have to be fiscally disciplined. You have to keep your debt down. You have to borrow less, etc. And all will come right. Maybe not in your lifetime, maybe not in your children's lifetime, but sometime in the future. We have to reject this myth of helplessness. And it is possible for internally driven development strategies to offset some of the challenges we face as a small economy in a big globalized world. Right. So these one development is good, look at socialism or Marxism will not give you what you are looking for. They are as much fairy tales as neoclassical economics is. Maybe I'll just comment on that. You can add, Profundi. So I think the point is, you know, to sort of find a balance between our system that we operate in, capitalism, and those systems that are on the other extreme. And I think there are countries that do this quite well. And even in our case, although our economy is not great, we do have a lot of socialist elements within our economy. So, for example, our health spending, our education spending, um, you know, those have a very sort of socialist vibe about them. But I think some of the Nordic states do this quite well, the social democracies. There is a way of looking at how, you know, you can sort of merge those two systems together. But of course, you know, they didn't start from the low base that we started. We're almost out of time. Pandi, I think this looks like it's more of a comment than a question. As long as any policy is pro-poor, it is meant to raise the ordinary South African standard of living. It will reduce disparities in our society and give equal access to resources to all our people. I don't care how that policy is arrived at. These are but tools of analysis and should be viewed as such. We should not have sentimental attachment to any of them. And yes, education should, as all-encompassing as possible, should be, I suppose. Prufpandi, I don't know if you have any last comments. No, I, I can't disagree with the last statement, but I think that in response to the earlier question, I think it's important to move away from these isms, whether it's capitalism, socialism, etc. But at the same time, we should ask ourselves, do we know enough about socialism and Marxism to say that it's nonsense? Uh, because as you have just cited the examples of the Scandinavian and other northern European economies, they have taken the best of socialism and the best of capitalism to create their social democracies, which are amongst the richest economies in the world, but it's wealth with equality. And unfortunately, uh, we are struggling with getting that mix right in Africa. But uh, thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Perfect. Thanks, Prof. Pandi. Thanks, Kamantha. Do you say something or do we say goodbye and wait for next week's invitation? I just want to thank everyone for joining us for the session. Next week, we will be focusing on M&E. 
So we look forward to having everyone. Thank you, Prof Pandi, for your time and Adil for taking what was like, yeah, half an hour of Q&A today. Very nice. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by, by, by the Viz School of Governance. For more information, visit their website on www.wits.ac.za slash WSG.